Would you stand with us as we read Habakkuk chapter 3 together? Your part will be congregation on the screen. I'm starting at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. There goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushion under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Bows made bare. The rites of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice and lifted its hands. Sun and moon stood still in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of, of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters, I heard, and in my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet. He makes me walk on my high places. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, may we come expectant. May we come expectant for our hearts to be changed, for our perspective to be altered, for 
there to be a response you require from us. Lord, your word is sharp. It's like a sword that pierces. May it pierce our hearts. May it wound, but also heal today. Lord, may you do something unexpected in our midst through our encounter this morning with you through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last Sunday when we looked at Habakkuk chapter 2, you heard me say that some things are inevitable. Reproof is inevitable. We saw that. Recompense is inevitable. We saw that in chapter 2. This week, as we finish the book of Habakkuk, you're going to hear me say the exact opposite. Some things are not inevitable. Some things that seem like they are, are not at all. Some of your assumptions about the future, things that feel inevitable, may in fact be far from it. Let me give you an example this morning. And see if your heart has made this assumption. How many of us, not asking for a show of hands, but how many of us living in the West assume that moral decline is inevitable? In your heart, you don't have to raise your hand, but in your heart, what's your assumption? Do you assume that the upcoming generation will be worse and have it worse than you did? As you look back in history, do your eyes glimpse some golden age, an age of greater faith and faithfulness to God? But as you look forward, do you see the world darkening and growing colder? And do you assume that it's all inevitable? How many of us, looking at trends and attendance numbers, assume that the continued church decline in the West is inevitable. Maybe you look back longingly to the 1950s and before when it felt like everyone in the community was part of the church. But then come the 1960s and things begin to change. The culture begins to change. The church begins to decline. And 60 years on, you begin to assume in your heart that nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the church's steady decline. The past was an age of faith, but the future looks like an age of skepticism and moral decline. I don't like it, but it feels in my heart like it's inevitable. Have you felt that way? Have you entertained those thoughts? If you have, then Habakkuk, has a word for you today. God has a word for you today. Look with me at Habakkuk chapter 3. Look at verse 2. In verse 1, we're reminded again that Habakkuk reads like the prophet's personal prayer journal. He says that's what it is. It's a prayer. And then in verse 2, we see the most profound and urgent prayer of this Old Testament prophet. A prayer that at its heart is a prayer for Revival. Revival. This may not be the only prayer in the Bible expressly for revival, but it is the only prayer outside of the Psalms that actually uses the word. Revive. Revive. Look at verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. 
O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk calls on God to revive his work in the midst of the years. But what does that mean? In the midst of what years, you might ask? What's Habakkuk talking about? In the midst of the years. Habakkuk is saying this. He's praying, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years that your people have seen decline. In the midst of the years that your people have seen depravity and the advance of the enemy's lies. Revive your work, O Lord, in the midst of the years that your people have suffered. Suffered attack. Suffered reproach. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years that we have seen trouble. Lord, revive your work. Lord, revive us, your people, the work of your hands. This is a prayer for revival. In a time when things seem to be going in the opposite direction. The tide seems to be going out on truth and the knowledge of God in Habakkuk's day. The tide of truth seems to be going out, and the Babylonians seem to be coming in. Hard times lie ahead. Habakkuk hears that from God. Hard times lie ahead, times of invasion and exile. Habakkuk could have looked around and concluded, there's no way to salvage anything. Israel's moral decline will only accelerate once we're all taken off to Babylon, do you know what kind of reputation that city has? It's sin city over there. And that's where the Lord is sending us. What little faith is left in Israel is going to be utterly lost and destroyed. Habakkuk could have very easily thought that way. You could very easily think that way. You could look around and conclude that there's no way there's going to be anything to salvage. Once the sexual revolution has run its course through the younger generation, what will be left? Who will be left to listen to a God who says, I designed sexuality, and I know best how it works. I am God. I designed mankind, and I know best how humans flourish. People don't want to listen. Decline feels inevitable. The tide seems to be going out. And what can possibly stop it? God can. God has. And true to form, God will do it again. If you're taking notes, I've just given you my outline for where we're going. Who can bring the revival Habakkuk asked for in verse 2? God can. We see that in verses 3 through 15. The God of verses 3 through 15 is more than capable of bringing revival. We're going to move quickly through those verses because there are probably very few people here who need convincing of this. God's capacity to do this. There's probably no one here who would be surprised that God is capable of bringing revival. God has the power and capacity to revive his work in the midst of the years. 
you wouldn't be surprised by that. But you might be surprised at just how often he does this in history. So after we look at verses 3 through 15, I want to pause and reflect on history itself. We'll see first that God can revive his work, and then we'll see that God has, in history, many times, revived his work in the midst of the years. And then lastly, we'll reflect on how we should live waiting for God to do it again in the midst of our years. That's the position that Habakkuk finds himself in, in verses 16 through 19, and that's where we'll end as well. But first, let's look at God's capacity in verses 3 through 15. God's capacity. God can bring revival. God can answer Habakkuk's prayer in verse 2 and revive his work in the midst of the years because this is a God who, in verse 3, covers the heavens with his splendor. He fills the earth with his praise. God never leaves himself without a witness. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Every mountain stream, every spring flower that you see proclaims their maker's praise. People can blind their eyes. They can stop their ears. But they cannot wholly escape the witness of creation. It's always there. In every rainbow, in every sunset, in every bird in flight, in every clap of thunder, the witness of creation is always there. Responding to that witness, therefore, is always a possibility and a responsibility for every generation, for every person. No culture is too far gone. No age is too depraved when the creator is capable of summoning witnesses to his splendor anywhere the eye looks. So, church, let's pray for an awakening of eyes to see the glory of God and ears to hear that creation is singing his praise. That's verse 3. Look at verse 4. It would not be hard for us to pray that prayer and for God to answer it because this is who he is. Verse 4, his radiance is like the sunlight, his rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Consider this for a moment. God's full power has never been revealed. Never. Creating an entire universe, as vast as it is, did not max him out. There is the hiding of his power. There is always more power, which we have never seen and which we can never fathom. God reviving his work would not stretch him by any means, would it? His power doesn't need to recharge His power is such that he can revive his work whenever he pleases. And he is not limited to working in the ways we think he should. That much should be clear from verse 5. Look at verse 5. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. (laughs) If you don't have a theology that can handle that verse, 
you need to go and reread the book of Exodus. There you'll see God displaying his power and his wonders in plagues and in pestilence, frogs, gnats. God governs them all. And he can use such things. He can use national and international catastrophes to revive his work in the midst of the years. God can use such things to startle the nations, verse 6, and make them tremble, verse 7. He can and will be gracious when he does so. If people take those opportunities to come to their senses, like the prodigal son waking up in the pigsty, come to their senses and return home to a father's embrace. God's good when he brings pestilence if it would lead us back to his arms. But if people will not return home, if they will not go home, if people will not surrender and lay down their arms, God can and will come out for them as if for war. That's what we see in verses 8 through 12. God rides out for war in chariots of salvation, verse 8. He bears his bow, verse 9, and reveals his rod of correction. The earth responds, verse 10. The light of sun and moon are eclipsed by God's light, in verse 11. The light of his arrows, the radiance of his spear outshines the sun. And the nations are trampled in his wake, verse 12. He comes out for war and he fights for his people. That's the message of verses 13 through 15. Look at verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil. God fights for his people. His cause is their salvation. And he justly and poetically turns the weapons of his enemies upon themselves. You see that verse 14? You pierced them with their own spears. They're destroyed with their own weapons. They fall into their own pits. They're condemned by their own devices. And the chaotic forces that would trample upon God's people, God tramples upon them instead. Verse 15. This God has certainly the capacity to revive his work in the midst of troubled years, does he not? God can do it. Has he done it? Yes, he has. Let's pause here in Habakkuk 3. Let's pause for, for a minute and think about history. How have we seen God revive his work in the midst of the years throughout history. Let's go all the way back in our minds to the days of Noah. The days of Noah. Things were bad then, weren't they? Very bad. God saw that the intent of people's heart was only evil continually, the scripture says. But in the midst of such widespread depravity, like we have not seen, widespread depravity, God revives his work through Noah and his family. And he washes the old world clean and resets 
and restarts again with Noah and his descendants reviving his work. God can change the game at any moment. He revives his work through Noah, but it isn't long before all of those descendants decide to defy God and in their pride build a tower, thinking it could stretch to heaven. Things look bad again, but God revives his work in the midst of the years. He scatters the people, and from among those scattered people, he chooses one, Abram of Ur. You shall be mine, and through you I will make a promise. God picks this one guy and changes his name. You will be called Abraham, the father of many nations, and through you I'm going to revive my work. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But it isn't long before Abraham's descendants find themselves in a very hard place. In slavery. In Egypt. 400 years of slavery. 400 years of waiting. 400 years of crying out to God. And what does God do? He revives his work. In the midst of the years. He spares Moses from slaughter as a baby. He raises him up to deliver his people from Egypt. And to deliver to them his instructions. His word. His law. His Torah. And after a good bit of wandering around in the wilderness. The people enter into the land that God has promised them. But then what happens? The judges cycle starts. You know this cycle. Moral decline begins in the nation. Idol worship increases. God's judgment falls through the surrounding nations. Then what happens? The people cry out. Deliver us, O Lord. How long? And God revives his work again. In the midst of the years, he raises up a judge to deliver the people, to deliver God's word to the people, and to deliver God's people from their enemies. And after the time of judges comes what? The time of the kings. And often you see that judges cycle repeated with good kings following bad kings. God reviving his work through kings like David and Josiah. Bringing revival to the nation. But now we reach the time of Habakkuk. And moral decline is everywhere again. Habakkuk says that there is contention all around. There's violence in the streets. God sends another nation, Babylon, to bring judgment upon his people and to take them into exile. But while in exile, unexpectedly, contrary to what everyone expected, yet again, God revives his work and revives his people. This is the time of Esther and Ezra, of Daniel and Nehemiah. This is a time of faith that closed the mouths of lions and withstood the wrath of kings. God revived his work and restored his people back to the land. But then, what came next? 400 years of silence. There's no prophet saying, thus says the Lord. The Apocrypha, which is kind of the intertestamental period, was written then. And even the Apocrypha says that prophecy had ceased in Israel 
There's no one saying, thus says the Lord. There's no word from God. There's silence for 400 years. During this time, 400 years, the Greeks come. Alexander comes conquering. The Romans came after them. It was a time of living under foreign occupation, of resisting foreign gods. But then, in the midst of the years, a voice starts crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. John the Baptist comes declaring that the Lord himself is coming to revive his work in our time, in our years. Jesus becomes the word who takes upon himself flesh and dwells among us. He is the ultimate example of God reviving his work in the midst of the years. In the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world, the scripture says. The incarnation of Christ is what all of God's redemptive work was building to in the first place. God himself comes to us and he preaches good news. He starts mending all the broken bits of the world. And climactically, he tastes death for us all. He defeats death for us all. He accomplishes all the work necessary for our salvation. And then he tells us to go. Tell everyone about it. Go. Make disciples of all nations. That's our work. Telling folks about his work. But has the church always been good at it? No. 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 Now, God has always kept for himself a witness in history. But there have been many periods of stagnation and moral decline, and real darkness in church history. The medieval times are called the Dark Ages for a reason. In many places, most priests could not even tell you the Lord's Prayer, let alone articulate the gospel message. But in the midst of the years, God revives his work. The motto, do you know the motto of the Reformation? Post tenembras lux. After darkness, light. After darkness, light. After a season of darkness, the tide comes back in. God revived his work, and the gospel light was once again shining in human hearts and in the church pulpit. But, lest we Protestants start to feel smug, It wasn't all revival, all the time, among those who protested the errors of Rome. Here are some reports. I have for you here some reports inside Protestant churches less than 100 years after the start of the Reformation. 1594, some Lutheran church in Germany, this was said. Those who come to the service are usually drunk and sleep through the whole sermon except sometimes they fall off the benches, making a great clatter, or women drop their babies on the floor. (laughs) Weisbaden, 1619. It was said, During the church there is such snoring that I could not believe my ears when I heard it. The moment these people sit down, they put their heads in their arms and go straight off to sleep. Like it's one life weekend every weekend. In addition, many bring their dogs inside the church. 
barking and snarling are so loud that no one can hear the preacher. Leipzig, 1567. They play cards while the preacher preaches and often mock and mimic him cruelly to his face, cursing and blaspheming. Hooliganism and fighting are common. They enter the church when the service is half over and run out before the benediction. No one joins in the singing of the hymn. (laughs) The tide for Protestantism can go out as well. The tide of truth has gone out in many Protestant countries in Europe. In the UK, following the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, came the time of the great ejection. Do you know what that is? The great ejection. Over 2,000 faithful gospel-preaching pastors were ejected from their pulpits, from their churches. I can walk you through the, the library and my study downstairs, book after book, of men who were thrown out of their church during that time. The tide of truth began to go out in England. And the tide of truth went out so far that the best-known bishop of the 18th century, George Barclay, announced in 1738 that the religion and morality in Britain had collapsed to such a degree that was never before known in any Christian country. The morality of the early 1700s was so notoriously bad that public executions and bear baiting were the preferred entertainments of the day. But... In the midst of the years, God revived his work. George Whitfield, John Wesley, and many more were used of God to spark a revival among the common people. Preaching of the gospel happened in open air for the first time. Coal miners would come out of the mines, their face blackened, and he said you could only see the white streaks of their tears as the gospel was preached to them. George Whitfield crossed the Atlantic 13 times to preach in the colonies as well. Jonathan Edwards was here and part of a great awakening. America has known several great awakenings and remarkable times of revival in the midst of the years. Some of you who follow the news may be hearing about what's going on today at Asbury College, and wondering, are we on the cusp of a period of revival now, in our day, in our years? The Lord knows the true answer to that question. I don't, but I do know this, that we can't be so skeptical or foolish to think that revival can't take place now because we are, because of the place we are in culturally in the West. Revival may be happening in other places, in Iran today, in Asia, in Africa, but it can't happen here because ours is a time of decline. It can't happen here. It can happen over there. We're, we rejoice in that, see the church advance, but not here in the West, because here it's a time of decline. Church decline, moral decline. We can't think that way, church. Isn't this precisely when God would revive his work? In the midst of declining years? 
The tide only comes back in because it's gone out. Right? Charles Spurgeon observed the tide going out in his day, and he said this. He said, you never met an old salt, an old sailor down by the sea, who was troubled because the tide had been ebbing out for hours. No. He waits confidently for the turning of the tide, and it comes in due time. He doesn't say, yonder rock has been uncovered during the last half hour, and if the sea continues to ebb out for weeks, there will be no water left in the English Channel, and the French will come over from Normandy. Nobody talks in that childish way, for such an ebb will never come, nor will we speak as though the gospel would be routed and eternal truth driven out of the land. We serve an almighty master. If our Lord but does stamp his foot, he can win for himself all the nations of the earth against heathenism and Mohammedism and agnosticism and modern thought and every other foul error. He, who, who is he who can harm us if we follow Jesus? How can his cause be defeated? At his will, converts will flock to his truth as numerous as the sand of the sea. Wherefore, be of good courage and go your way singing. Those are good words for us today. And those are good words for Habakkuk. Habakkuk doesn't begin by going his way singing. But he does get there in the end, doesn't he? Look with me in verse 16. Habakkuk's reaction. Verse 16. I heard in my inward and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my, at the sound of my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones. And in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade us. Habakkuk knows that the tide is going out in his day. He knows that days of distress and exile await him. We can see that he mourns. He's really mourning here over those realities. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to mourn this kind of loss, to weep over the moral decay and destruction that you see coming. But that's not where Habakkuk stays, is it? No. Habakkuk, the complaining prophet, gives us an example at the book's end of how to live as we wait upon the Lord to revive his work in the midst of the years. Here's the final thing we're going to see. Look at verses 17 through 18. Verse 17, Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no fruit, food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. If we could see once again the, the sermon graphic on the screen, just for a moment, please. Perhaps it'll make sense, or better sense to you now. What is this? It's an empty barn. Empty barn. How do you live 
when the barn stalls are all empty? How do you live through troubled times? What do you do while you wait for revival? While you wait for God to revive his work in the midst of the years? Habakkuk tells us, you trust, you exult, you rejoice in the Lord, you go your way singing. Why? Because the tide will come back in. God governs the tides and he can change the trajectory of history in a moment. He has done it before, he will do it again. He's done it time and time again. He delights to do it. He delights to do it when we least expect him to. And he delights to do it when his people pray for him too. When we call out to him, Lord, like like Habakkuk, Lord, revive your work in the midst of our years. And while we wait, be our strength. While the world sinks down, Make our feet like Heinz feet. Show the world through us how to walk in high places, high places of deepest joy and greatest delight. Lord, revive your work and may it begin in me. May it begin in us. We're going to do something different, a bit different, as I bring things to a close this morning. I hope you know that every Sunday our altar here is open for you to respond, to come and pray and do business with God in your heart. That response is open to you each and every week, whether I say it or not, it's there. But today, I want to, once again, make that invitation explicit. I don't know the impact of what's going on right now on multiple college campuses around our country. I don't know what that impact will be a year from now or 10 years from now, but I do know that we live in the kind of moment that we should hope and we should expect for God to revive his work in the midst of the years. I do know that decline is not inevitable. The tide always comes back in. I know that it is not a coincidence that we are here in the book of Habakkuk now. This series was slated long before anything started happening at Asbury or anywhere else. I don't know all that's going on today. And I certainly don't know all that God is doing. But I do want to pray today for revival. I want to pray For God to revive his work in our midst and in the midst of our years. And I want to invite you to join me in doing that this morning. If you feel inclined as I close this time in prayer, feel free to come as I pray and kneel here at the altar. There's nothing magical about kneeling at the altar, but the postures of our hearts often do tend to follow the posture of our body. So, if you want to come, please do. And after I say the amen, 
We'll sing a song of response. If you still have more in your heart to pour out to God, don't stop. Keep praying. And after our song of response, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. But even then, don't feel rushed. If you still, it's still in your heart to pray, keep praying. You can join the Lord's table when you're ready. The Lord will revive his work in the midst of the years. Let's draw close to him now. As a family of faith, praying to the Lord of the harvest that we might see the revival of his work in our years and that that revival might begin in us. As I pray now, you come. Father, I ask that you would push aside in us all that would distract us in these moments. Push it aside. May we come to you as Habakkuk, pleading, asking, Lord, revive your work in the midst of our years. In wrath, remember mercy. Jesus told us, that the days are coming in which the hearts of many will grow cold. But we pray, O oh Lord, forbid that it be our hearts. It need not be our hearts. May our hearts burn white hot for the Lord Jesus. May we hold out the candle of our faith and hold it up to the iceberg around us. May, together, may it become a torch. May we see you work melting cold hearts, reviving your work in the midst of the years. Lord, may that begin in us, in our hearts. May we confess, confess our sin. May we turn to you in repentance. May we confess our sins to one another and return to our God, knowing that your arms are wide open to us. Lord, we ask it. Revive your work. In the midst of the years, we pray, and we continue to pray as we sing this song of response together. In Jesus' name, amen.